Welcome to our weekly, and we mean weekly Wednesday night shear. This week's Pasha is Pasha Shalach. Not a very encouraging Pasha, if we're going to take it for face value, of course. Shlach lecha anoshim. The Almighty tells Moshe Rabbeinu. Rashi explains, I don't necessarily agree with this miraglim business with these spies. It's not necessarily my cup of tea. But if you feel it's a way to go. You send yourself the Miraglan on your own, your own initiative, your own idea. Hashem himself does not agree, but Meshra Beinu, not necessarily Shalom, we want to say that it was peer pressure. Moshe Rabbeinu refuses to back down and Moshe Rabbeinu sends Sadikim, Anoshim Anoshim are righteous people and he sends them out this immediately sent up a flag by everyone by the Canaanim and by the Jews. The flag went up saying in simple words something is not right. Something's amiss here. And the Miraglim is a horrific expression. We cannot go up to this nation. We cannot go against them. They're stronger than we are. Moshe told him, go see the land. And he says, And he says to them, go see the land. He also says, what is it? Are the people there strong? Are the people there weak? Are there few? Are there many? The land itself that they are living in, is it good or is it bad? He wanted to know, tell me everything, camps, fortresses, everything that goes on around the entire land. What's up with this land? The Miraglim, the spies, return. And they said, very simple, they gave a report. People that live there are strong. The cities that are there are fortified. 
they're very big, they're very great. Finally, the Miraglim added that one more sentence. Nobody asked them. No one asked your opinion, but they had to give their opinion. And their opinion was, we can't go against them. They're stronger than we are. The nation went to tears. They went to tears. They lost it. Maisha, you took us out of Egypt. No, it was a good trick. You got us across the sea. No, another good trick. Tachlis. We're up against something now that's bigger than you. You cannot get us into this land. Now what? Take us back to Egypt. Take us back to Mitzrayim. We had food there. We had housing there. We had whatever. It wasn't pleasant. It was a pretty miserable life. But we may do. Take us back there. Laws up. Enough of this whole story. Thirty-nine years were added to the Jews' journey because of this act, because of this reaction. A plague breaks out amongst the people, and these ten spies, ten of the twelve, die within the plague. They obviously committed some kind of crime. What was this actual crime that they did? Mesha told them to do exactly that, to go see, and they came back with a report of exactly what Mesha said. The truth is, the report per se was not what got them into trouble. The conclusions... That's what the problem was. Saying that B'nai Yisrael were not capable, it was beyond their abilities to do such, this was a problem. Moshe asked, he asked for a report. The land, its inhabitants, just Stunned to say and to show. In case they want to take a plan, a feasible route, in case they really plan on staging any kind of battle. Meshinu, like leaving Egypt, like crossing the Yamsuf, it would all be based on miracles. It's all from the hand of God. <laughs> but Mesha said, Let's let them feel comfortable. Let's let them feel that they're going to do something and they're going to do it well. This horrific problem, this tragic mistake, underscores the importance 
of taking on Mesha's approach when we encounter a mitzvah. A mitzvah that sometimes seems way too difficult for us, way above our capacity, or so much so that it's literally impossible for us to do it. Alpi Seichel, that could be. If a human being would not instruct someone to perform a task that he knew the other person was incapable of performing, so much more so, the Creator, Hashem Yisbarach, who knows exactly what the abilities of a person are, how much they're capable of doing. The Amish created us. So there's no miscalculations on God's behalf. God's behalf. So Hashem only gives us mitzvahs, commandments that we are capable of doing. Let us scrutinize a moment the Miragam's mission, the spy's mission, and the spy's error. What was going on in their heads? What was going on in their minds when they came back with such a malicious report on the Holy Land which they knew when they left Egypt the mission was to enter the Holy Land. All the trials and tribulations they were going to go through all the miracles that Hashem does for them is so that they can enter the Holy Land but yet the Miraglim who were ten holy people all twelve were holy people something clicked in their minds And they backed out. We find later also in the Haftarah, Yehoshua, Moshe Rabbeinu's successor, also sends out Miraglim, spies. Before conquering the land. But there is a visible difference between the Miraglim of Mesha and the Miraglim of Yeshua. Mesha's Miraglim was sent in an open field. They didn't try to hide themselves, so much so that the residents of the land, the Canaanim, saw them walking across an open field and said, look, grasshoppers, human grasshoppers. To them, they looked like grasshoppers. This is one of the reasons that they say they're so big, they're so much bigger than we. Yeshua's spies went in on a mission. They went in, nobody should see them, nobody should know they're there, coming, going, shah, still. 
maybe we could say perhaps, just perhaps, the difference the sending of the Miraglim was for two reasons, twofold one of course you send in spies to know how to conquer, which way to go in what's the best way the simplest way least casualties as we say damage control so that you can go in a second reason a second purpose when the spy comes back and reports and tells you that it's worthwhile because this land is really special it makes it that much easier on the heart and it gives the person that much more determination to go in and to conquer the spies of Mesha were not sent to conquer had Mesha stepped in to conquer the land it would have been one big miracle anyway so it wasn't being done a natural way rather it was being done miraculously so he didn't have to know what's the most pleasant way to get in what's the easiest way at least casualties etc that would be the natural way of doing things So in other words, the only reason he sent the Miraglim was to say how beautiful the land is. They would come back and report the greatness and the beauty of the land. Whilst when it turns to Yeshua, who needed to conquer the land, not miraculously like Moshe, still needed miracles, obviously, but not performing the same miracles that Moshe did. He needed to come on to the natural way. He needed to come into the battlefields. He needed to know which way to go in first. And he sends therefore Miraglim to know how to conquer the land. Like any nation goes to war. They send in spies to know what's happening. And therefore we know the difference between Meshach's and Yeshua's Miraglim. That nations did not have to hide. Because the conquering would anyway be done miraculously. Mashenkin Yeshua's Miraglim, they needed to hide. Because they were going in naturally. Just a little uh, detour, a little tangent, talking of spies. I never heard the story before. Ironically, the story is stored on my phone. So when I turn on, or when we push the wrong button on my dashboard in my car, and the phone is connected to the Bluetooth, this is the first story that comes up. A woman from woman 
tells of her father, also a film man, who worked in the Pentagon. He was, excuse me, the highest level civilian possible. He was not enlisted, but he had the highest clearance of any civilian that there was. One day, he was visited by the holy people of the Mossad. Our holy brethren from Israel, and him being a from man with a yarmulke, they told him that we understand that you love Israel, you understand that it's our land, you understand how important it is that we stay safe, etc. We have a mission for you that we think only you can do. There was something that deterred him from saying yes right away. And he said, hold on a minute. He went into his office and he called the Rebbe's secretary, Benjamin Klein. And he told Benjamin Klein to please ask the Rebbe. He has men here from the Mossad. And they have a mission for him. He doesn't know what it is. Should he accept? Should he talk to them? Yaman said, hold on. Give me a minute. About 30 seconds later, not even a minute, Yaman Klein was back on the phone, very, very, very agitated, very nervous seemingly. And he says, the Rebbe told me to tell you not only not to negotiate with these people, throw them out of your office now. Just throw them out. And, as nice as he could be, the Rebbe gives such direct instructions so quickly, it must be something really severe. As nice as he could be, he went over to them and he told them, Yashikoach and Lehitraot. I have nothing to talk to you about. I have nothing to deal with you. Please leave my premises. And leave they did. And they went on to their next person who was not as high ranking, not as well connected. He was a simple man, much lower on the accolade, called... Jonathan Pollard. And that's who they went to, and that's who they got to do their mission. And not only, excuse me, I left out one thing, they told him, we know you have a family to worry about, etc. We will back you up 100%. We'll take care of you, we'll take care of your family, we'll relocate, we'll give you new identities and everything. If anything goes south here, anything goes wrong, we got you back. Well, for those of you that are versed in any which way, form, or fashion in history, you might know that nobody had this guy's back. Only recently did he get out of jail. 
Now, what his scoop was, what his story was, actually we don't know. But the bottom line, the Rebbe told him immediately, stay far away from the situation. The physical atzmah hits you out in Diba. This kavnu, Shem Shifrem, Mishune, Kach, Amu Mishune. The rest had an awkward intention to show and to prove. Just as their produce is different, is off the charts, as they say in America, so too is the entire nation. And therefore, it's not going to be a simple situation here. Welcome, Scranton. Mesha commanded them. He told them, as we just said before, Vizchazaktem ulakaktem apiaretz. Strengthen yourselves and bring me back from the fruits. How did Yeshua and Kalev have the audacity to exonerate themselves from such a mission? They were told clearly by Moshe, bring back fruits. Why did they separate themselves from the rest and not do what they were told? Truth to be told, when the Meraglim took the fruits, their actual action of taking the fruit itself had bad intentions. Like Rashi explains, Lahetzi Diba Neskavnu, Shenshepiria Mishune Kach Amu Mishune. They had full intention to show and to prove that this nation was problematic. Just as the fruits were, so were the people. And just like, but however, the intention itself, the Meraglim said to the Jewish Shepiri Mishunah, they also said, They introduced it first, sugarcoating it, literally, by saying that it's flowing with milk and honey, a land flowing with milk and honey. And these are the fruits. In order to get a good lie across, you got to have some kind of truth in it. And therefore they did just that. In order to be able to get their lie in, 
They needed it to sound feasible. And therefore it says, Ephes, Ki'azam. The nation is very strong. So the Miraglim didn't really lie about that. But Rashi says, though, that this was their actual intention when they brought back the fruit. A hidden idea, bringing the fruits to sweeten the lie. ki azam. Because they said the fruits are different to all the people. Now we understood why Yeshua and Kalev didn't take anything. Because the actual action of coming and taking fruits was already a wrong action. And therefore they could not take anything from there. Because by being an accomplice and taking fruits with them, they were becoming accomplice to what was going on over here. This Moshe did not send them to do. And since the mission, the intention of the mission was distorted, Therefore, it was aborted. I have to remember that for the weekly poem. <laughs> See if I can. thinking we've spoken about this before because this is the whole catastrophe of the story of the Miraglim holy smoke The Miraglim were very holy. Their holiness found them in the desert sustaining themselves on the mun Sustaining themselves on the Be'er Miriam. Everything extremely, extremely spiritual. They were told though, we're going into the Holy Land. As we enter the Holy Land, there are many mitzvahs awaiting us. Among the mitzvahs 
Trumois, Maestros, Orlo, Kedusha Tara, Tumentara. Tumentara, they were familiar with it a little bit. The bones of Yasef, etc. Trumas Nisus Peya Leket Shikha This was given from the field. Person had a field. Wheat or whatever grew. They needed to leave over Leket Shikha Peya for the poor. They need to give to the Kahanim Levim Trumas Maitres. Tremendous mitzvahs. One problem. The mitzvah is going to take away from the Torah learning. They can't very well sit and study Torah. They need to work. They didn't want to give up that terror study. They didn't think that was the right way to go. That was the right approach. I said, why give up? Living with the man being sustained with such great spirituality and starting to live this mundane physical world mundane physical life so really in essence there was a method to their madness as we say they had a Today's Hayyem Yem talks about the Siddhishi Sahara. And this Siddhishi Sahara said, Mitzvah is a Gavaldic. But what compares to terrorist study? The rupture is the roof. The totally <coughs> Had a very interesting custom in his life. Go in the morning. Mikver. To learn, to daven. He come home. He put down his towels and film, obviously in Shul he didn't have a locker. (sighs) 
he'd put down his talis and film, and he would go out again. He'd go out to the entire city, door to door, collecting. And he would collect money for the poor. By the time he came home, the easy part was there. The poor people were waiting for their money. The poor people were ready to take. The hard part was over, getting the money from the rich. No. He distributed whatever he collected. Poor people went home. Hopefully they had money for food, for breakfast, for lunch, whatever it might be. And he got ready, took his towel, got ready to wash, to sit down and to eat. He was hungry. No. He gets ready to sit down to eat, and there's a knock on the door. The door opens up a jar. And this poor man peeks in his head. And says, uh, sorry I'm late, but please, please, the children are starving. Nuravnatoli put down the towel. His first reaction was to say, sorry, you're not going to miss the distribution. Come back tomorrow. But he saw that this man really would not make it till tomorrow, Chassel. So he put back on his coat, put down the towel, put on his coat, went back out again to all the people. And boy was he getting looks and reactions from people. And they were giving him a tenth of what they usually give. And they were really upset. What is this supposed to be a second time? Twice a day now you're gonna come? No, he went now back from door to door. Got pretty frowned upon. Excuse me. Finally, he came back with whatever it was that he was able to collect to amass, and he gave the poor man and sent him on his way. No. He didn't feel overly accomplished because after all people made him feel like garbage. And ultimately he didn't do so well with the collection. So the poor man didn't even get anything really he got but nothing what he needed or anticipated. No. He goes 
he takes the towel, he's ready to eat, and he hears, <coughs> and he looks up, there's another guy there, he says, oh no, I went out twice already, the guy says, you know what, I know you want to learn Torah. You want to eat breakfast. I know you're busy. Please just hear me out. It's okay. Sit down. And the fellow tells him that his wife, Shvakenim Zach, is very, very ill. Could God forbid become deathly ill. His daughter needs to get married. And the worst thing happened. Most of his house collapsed. No. Such dire situation. When Naftali puts down the towel. Puts on his coat again and says, here we go again. When he comes to the first fellow, and the fellow says, you know the Naftali, I, I apologize. I feel really bad the way I looked at you last time you came, even though it was the second time you're collecting. And I apologize, I really feel terrible, because I know you mean only good. And especially you're coming a third time for somebody else. You know it's not for you. So I well imagine that you really only do this so much lishma. Usually I give you one ruble, I'm going to give you ten. And every door that he went to was the same story. Everybody's apologizing for the harsh words and actions, reactions. No. He comes back with a substantial amount of money. And he was very hesitant to give it to this fellow. But he collected it for him, so he gives him the money, reluctantly. And he tells him, he says, tell me, young man, before you go, you're lying, aren't you? (laughs) Your wife's not dying. He says, no, but she's pregnant. And a pregnant woman... If she has to deliver a baby, so she's in a situation of she's in a precarious situation. Aha. And your daughter? Do you have a daughter? He said, of course I have a daughter. How old is she? Five. She's five? Yeah, you know, you can never be too sure. You have to be ready beforehand. You have to really be prepared. When they're ready to get married, you have to really have... So, uh, it's not. I'm not lying. I'm going to put away the money for her dowry, and I'll keep doing that for years until she gets ready to get married. And your house collapsed? This is, well, my rocking chair collapsed. But that's the most, where I spend most of my day on. And for me, it was like the house. 
But tell me, Reb Naftali, how did you know? How did you know I lied? Is I'll tell you the truth. I do this collection every single day. And people understand that I'm coming. They know I'm coming. They know why I'm coming. They know exactly where the money's going to. But everyone, without fail, the richest and the not-so-rich, all give me attitude. I never have the joy of a person telling me, sure, let me give you as much as I can, let me give you and then some. And yet, today, when I went to collect for you, it was a different world. Everybody opened their arms, opened their pockets. They were so excited to see me. I knew something is wrong, something is amiss here. I did the collection in Godless, but I knew, and that's why I had to ask you what it was that you did wrong. The Miraglim did the same. They came with this issue, with this problem, with this situation. And they knew that something had to be done in order to be able to get this done right. So they misconstrued slightly the truth. And you know something? One of the worst, the worst severe averis, and we've spoken about it many times, and you can never speak enough about it, is Lashon Hara. Many years ago, we made a fundraiser for the yeshiva, a buffet dinner. It was a buffet. We had several different caterers and takeout stores, takeout food stores that supplied us with food. It was all donated. And uh, people came for this magnificent smorgasbord. They paid an entrance fee. And it was eat all you wanted. And it was a decent fundraiser. But we had to advertise it. So, and that in the world of advertising, you go around, you go to people that are experts with the advertising business. And they give you different ideas, what kind of posters to make, what kind of invitations to send out, what kind of this, what kind of that. Now, this is not working on a $180 a couple. We were dealing with like $36 a couple. At $36 a couple, it would make us, if we brought in 100 couples, it would make us $4,000 barely. That's a lot, 100 couples. We had food for a good 300 people. Mm. So, we couldn't go out and splurge on advertisement, posters, invitations. So it cost, at the time, I think it was like $75. And you were given a phone list. I think actually it was a tzach list. Yeah, it was a tzach list. They gave you all the phone numbers, but they didn't give you the phone numbers. They made, you gave, uh, they gave you, sorry, they gave you the list of phone numbers and you called up company, I don't remember how much he charged, and he made the mass call. Today they do it all the time. Every time Bishrifka changes schedule, 
you get a phone call from Beis Rivka. This is associated with Beis Rivka. When they make these whole announcements. There'll be no school tomorrow. There'll be school tomorrow. We're going to make extra school tomorrow. We're going to make less school tomorrow. It comes across in these massive phone, mass phone calls. Um, so we put every, the guy puts everything in the database and he makes the phone calls. Now came the real part. Who's making the recording? Everybody said, I have the voice for this. <laughs> I'm clear enough. I speak beautifully. I have a fantastic diction. Now the truth is what we wanted to do was in order to test everybody's diction was we were going to put everybody a mouthful of marbles. And every hour they would take out a marble and talk with one marble less. When you talk with your mouthful of marbles, it's obvious it takes a lot of prob- a lot of pressure. And at the end, when you lose all your marbles, then you'll probably be the expert speaker. Mm-hmm. So, generally that excellent speaker lost all his marbles. We came, I came up with a Horrific idea. I took another person and we both called in at the same time simultaneously to the guy. You have to call into his recorder, to his machine. And then he plays that message out. So we both called a conference call into his machine and it became a conference call. Hello? is hello. Shalom. Yeah, hi, how are you? Baruch Hashem. Did you hear about this buffet dinner? A nushtik? What's the nushtik? And it explains the whole buffet dinner. You can come here and you get whatever you want. You pay only so much a couple. And we can ask them from the ville. And Nachum Siegel's going to come broadcast from there. When is it? Told them when it is. What time? Where? And everything. Everything was told emphatic. This was in less than a minute. Wow. Well, I got to tell you, I did one voice and my son did the other. I was almost killed in shul for it. A guy came over to me and said, you shvans, there's a way to listen to it again. You push a button and you listen to the message again. I listened five times till I figured out that it was not a real cross wire. <laughs> why, did why did everybody listen to the whole message? It sounded like they had a cross line. You pick up something at the phone and you hit two people in a conversation Today it's not so common because you have different wires already for it. In those days it was very common that you could pick up the phone and you hear two people talking. So everybody thought that they were listening to someone's conversation. So they listened to the entire message. According to the statistics, I think 85% he says to me, listen to the entire message. He says they never had such a percentage. So it's Meshiga. I said, how many people repeated it? He says, I don't even know, but a lot of people repeated it, he says. They push repeat again. They to, what, the chukim, if it's a cross line, what are, you, what are you pushing repeat for? You realize, obviously, <laughs> but they were so, it was so real, it had people, Mamish, Kalev gets up and says to the Yidden, the Yidden are ready to go to start a revolution, a bloodbath. And he says, did you know what Moshe Rabbeinu did? And the whole place falls silent. The entire nation falls silent. He's going to tell us something else that Moshe Rabbeinu did. They ask Khalif, what a magnificent job he does. And he says to them, you know what he did? He split the Yamsuf. He took us out of Mitzrayim. He got us the mon. He got us the slav. He got us the water. He brought us the tater. 
You check my text. At this point, though, everybody was quiet. And they were listening. Their ears perked up. But they thought they were going to hear something totally different. Who was Kalav talking about? Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu. And They were ready to hear something bad about him. Mind-boggling. Mind-boggling. This is how severe Lashon Hara is. Even to hear Lashon Hara about Moshe Rabbeinu, it froze the Jewish nation. It froze everybody there. This was the idea that the Miraglim bring a crowd as well. The Lashon Hara part that they presented caused tremendous, tremendous problems. Now, truth to be told, how far do we have to go not to hear Lashon Hara? How severe is the sin of Lashon Hara? We have to understand that the Jewish nation doesn't have many friends. Not in Istanbul, Turkey. Not in the backyard of ISIS. Not even in Brooklyn, New York. How many politicians 
trying to throw Israel under a bus. The story by the Abderuv, Sheheshel of Abder. He would sit and study. Yem Valayla. He'd sit and learn day and night. You could walk by his house two, three o'clock in the morning. He was sitting and learning. Four, five o'clock in the morning, he was in Bismedish. A tremendously holy soul. It was three o'clock in the morning, and this fellow knocks on the door. And he actually didn't wait for anyone to answer, he barges in. And you can see he's totally disheveled, totally distraught. And he says, Abdurub, Abdurub. My wife's been in labor for three days, Rahman al son. And they uh, they want to operate. They want to, I don't know what. And I'm scared. We're scared. It's dangerous. And the Abderuv heard what he said. He put his hands in his head. Probably his head in his hands. And he was in deep, deep devotion. Finally, he picks his head up, tells him, Mazatov, your wife had a boy, go home. The guy didn't know what to say, where to turn, he didn't know if the Rebbe was joking. He shook his hand, both hands, and he says, thank you very much, and he ran, backed out, and he ran home. As he gets home, he hears the crying of a baby. And um, the baby born was born. Baruch Hashem, everything was well. And he wanted to come back, thank the Abdurruf. Excuse me. The doctor of right for the miracle. So the next day he came back to thank him. He came back to thank him, and the chassidim didn't want to let him in. So they will let you in on condition. Find out what happened. What went on over there? What was he? What was the devotions? What was he thinking? 
And he agreed. He did a bit reluctantly, but he agreed. So after much coercing. And he went in, and he said, I came to thank the Rebbe for my blessing, for the blessing for my child. Baruch Hashem, mother and child are well. But may I ask, what was going on? What happened? What was the Rebbe doing when he was sitting and thinking? What was he concentrating on? The Aftaruf told him, I'll tell you the truth, The neshama of this child is a very high neshama. Very holy neshama. And it didn't want to come down. It didn't want to come into the world. I had to convince the neshama that it's got a place in this world and that it will be happy and it will accomplish what it needs to accomplish. And therefore, once I succeeded in doing that, the Neshama acquiesced, agreed, and came down. Needless to say, when he told this to the Chassidim, Chassidim were elated, to hear such a tremendous thing. And the Chassidim decided to keep tabs with this child. To know, to see where this child is going, this holy, holy Neshama. Well, for his first birthday, the child was granted a very interesting present. His mother passed away. And seven short years later, his father joined. So at eight years old, this child was orphaned. Then helped Abishta. A few years later, as he went from family to family, relative to relative, the Russian army came along and this child was taken with his friend as what was known as the Cantonist. They would draft him into the army of the Tsar. And the Rahman al-Sam, they would seek to convert these children by force. They would feed them treif tafke, they would do everything in their power to, to destroy these people spiritually. The Chassidim kept in touch with the boy. They would mail him letters frequently, and every so often he would get a letter back. And the letters stopped coming back. And they inquired and inquired by the friend that was with him. And the friend told them that the 
Russians beat him very severely to convert and because he refused they kept beating him until he died so this holy holy neshama had a mission to descend on this world to die this is the extent one needs to go for the three Avedis Gilarayas Shvichas Damim and Avedizara and I must tell you that Lashon Hara is probably all three wound up together and we know the famous stories of the Tanoim that literally stood in ovens so that people should not see them, should not feel bad. We don't, when we talk Lashnara, we don't know the damage, the severe damage we cause. We don't know the severe pains that we cause. And therefore, one needs to be very, very careful to watch their tongue whether it's true, whether it's not, it's irrelevant. Lashon Hara is a horrifically, horrifically terrible Aveda, a terrible sin, a painful sin, and God should protect us from all of it. And may God protect us that this week we should follow the directive of Moshe Rabbeinu who wanted to take the Yidin into Eretz Yisrael, and we should be able to go in this Shabbos to Eretz Yisrael, and we should hear the Shlach Lecha Anashim we should hear all the good parts of the parsha. We should be zeicher to see the edits, zavas, cholav, advash, shabbat, shalom to all.